Hi, this is Tom Compton of We Hold These Truths. You're listening to the Unheralded News and Review and Pharisee Watch, brought to you by We Hold These Truths at whtt.org on the web. Each week we look into the events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's Pharisee Watch and Unheralded News, we're going to be talking about the Messianic Movement. And the title of our talk today is The Messianic Movement Smuggles Zionism into the Mainline Church. And this was a piece written by Chuck Carlson of We Hold These Truths and dated April 5th, 2012. Stealing Easter from Jesus, the Messianic movement that is growing inside America's mainline churches could be called the second generation of what has been called Christian Zionism. Its leaders are no longer arrogant celebrity types like John Hagee, who have become an embarrassment to traditional churchgoers. The crass first generation of Christian Zionists used by sponsors in Israel's Lukehead party to mobilize millions of pro-Israel zealots and force the U.S. Congress into serving the interest and executing the plans of Israel rather than of the United States is in the last stage of usefulness. Its mission has been accomplished. The Messianic movement, quote-unquote, is wooing mainline churches with a velvet glove. Caesar Aharon, author of Judaizing Elements in the Messianic Movement, wrote almost 15 years ago about the danger of Jewish corruption inside the churches and recorded a valuable program about it. Trained as a conservative Jew, Aharon followed Jesus without Jewish reservations or Old Testament trappings. Aharon asserted that Messianic churches always consisted of one or a few Jews on the inside administering and preaching in the churches, which were attended and supported by seeking Christians spirit away from other denominations. We wrote about one such church a few weeks ago, the McLean Bible Church. If you are under the impression that your church is mainline, orthodox, or traditional Christian by any label, you need to watch for warning signs of Messianic Zionist corruption. One, has your church begun to practice Jewish, quote-unquote, Passover or, quote, Seder dinners, unquote, on Christian Good Friday? Two, does your church sponsor or arrange tours to Israel most of which are Zionist propaganda sessions and not Christian tours. Less than 10% of tour takers ever meet a Palestinian while in Israel. Three, does your church recognize Jewish holidays, such as Hanukkah at Christmas time or the Feast of Purim in February? Four, does your pastor offer special prayers for Israel as a state or for the peace of Israel or Jerusalem. The theft of Easter. There is little of any connection between the mission, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the strictly Jewish celebration of Passover. But a connection is manufactured 
by so-called Judeo-Christian groups, including Chosen People Ministries and Jews for Jesus, for Zionist purposes. An increasing number of mainline churches have allowed Messianic organizations to organize Seder dinners on Good Friday, promoting the false impression that Jesus observed Passover before he was tried and killed. The result is to turn Good Friday into a celebration of an old Hebrew tradition that had nothing to do with Jesus' mission on earth. Passover celebrations are being conducted in many churches on Friday, April 6, 2012. Jesus' Last Supper when he washed the feet of those he was to leave behind to do his mission, took place on a Thursday before Passover. Passover is a Jewish celebration observing events in the time of Moses. Passover is not relevant to Easter, and it is a diversion from Jesus' New Testament covenant. The Jewish Seder dinner apparently got its foot in the mainline church door years ago, when some pastors were persuaded to convert their traditional Monday Thursday communion service into mini seders, usually without the three-hour dinner. Some mainline churches observe an abbreviated Passover dinner at regular communion service on Monday Thurvis, which coincides with the day of the week of Jesus' Last Supper. Zionism has a way of getting one foot in the door and staying. Seder is a racial, strictly Jewish celebration commemorating God's passing over the Israelite children when, according to the book of Genesis, he sent terrible plagues on the people to impress the Pharaoh of his power. While the Seder seems to stress God's gift of freedom to the ancient Israelites, it also celebrates the slaughter of all the firstborn of Egypt and a God of wrath. Seder is about power. What does this event have to do with Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross? The Zionists suggest Jesus was a sacrificial lamb and Jews devour an entire lamb at the Seder, and that constitutes a connection. This is indeed questionable symbolism since those who celebrate Seder rejected Jesus who came as the Prince of Peace bringing a new covenant. How unlike the old, bloody one of the Jews and Messianic Christians celebrate on Purim and Passover. It needs to be noted that there were no Jews or Judea at the time of Moses, and the habit of calling everyone from Moses to Jesus a Jew is a confusing convenience for which biblical writers and editors should be tarred and feathered. The misuse of words has allowed modern-day Zionists to claim genetic kinship with any biblical character they may choose, even Jesus. Moses was an Israelite. Benjamin Netanyahu is an Israeli. They are not brothers from the same tribe as the Messianic Christian would have us believe. Christian Zionists cheat with the Bible to falsely connect Good Friday to a Seder dinner. Jesus ate his last meal with his immediate followers the day before the Passover, and Jesus had a very different agenda. He came to Jerusalem not to celebrate the festival, but in order to give up his life as a sacrifice. 
We are told his trip was planned to coincide with a date when the maximum number of fallen, quote, lost sheep of the house of Israel, unquote, would be in the town for feasting. It is clear, if you believe the words written in the book of John, that Jesus was hanging on the cross at the time the corrupted Israelites were eating their ceremonial Passover dinner. They were not celebrating Jesus, but denying him. We will examine a clear example where a modern Zionist Bible contradicts Jesus' red letter words. The result of accepting the notion that the Last Supper was a Seder is first that it leads to an easy suggestion that present-day Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, along with Jesus. Second, it leads to a foot in the door for those who want to reject some of what Jesus and later his disciples and apostles taught. Wherever Jesus' words contradict the Messianic view of prophecy and the agenda of the present-day state of Israel, they will say Israel was there first. The Talmud, not the Bible, describes in many rules how the celebration of, of Seder is to be carried out. Should churches carry out Talmudic rules? Among these Seder rules are that each participant will drink four cups of wine. That sounds like a party. Good Friday was not a party. Seder is a celebration of what Jews believe God did for the ancient Israelites in the time of Moses and all the plagues. In contrast, the Last Supper was the final session of a three-year training course at which Jesus told of his own imminent death, demonstrated his humble commitment to servitude by washing feet, explained to his followers that they must accept his promise of the exchange of their own lives for his promise of everlasting life, and prepared them to see him crucified the next day. Jesus gave each of them the need to prepare for persecution and an early death. The only similarity between Jesus' Last Supper and the Seder dinner is the presence of food. The two events may have occurred during the same season, but there is no connection that justifies diluting the major Christian holiday of Easter with a Passover diversion. Those who instigate or officiate over Seder dinners in Christian churches are usually Jewish, and the dinners are often organized by Jews for Jesus or Chosen People Ministries. They make an emotional comparison of Jesus and the Passover lamb and portray Passover as a type of Jesus. They go so far as to compare eating the sacrificed lamb to our communion with Jesus. This conflation between Jesus and Passover diminishes the Christian story and focuses on a Jewish story. This is a most familiar pattern. The Seder dinner works to dilute Jesus' words, just as the Schofield Reference Bible does. An outrageous Zionist example is found in John's account of the Good Friday events the day after the Last Supper. Jesus is being privately tried by a pilot who tells Jesus, quote, Thine own nation and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Unquote. Jesus answered, quote, My kingdom is not of this world. Unquote. 
But the Schofield footnote to verse 36 nullifies Jesus' spoken words by stating, quote, the verse is erroneously taken to mean Christ was disavowing that his kingdom would be established on earth. Apart from the incompatibility of such a view with the entered testimony of Scripture, unquote. What is the Zionist answer to words spoken by Jesus they cannot agree with? It conveniently refutes his words in the book. The Schofield note says Jesus' words have to be wrong because they are, quote-unquote, incompatible with the interpretation of those who wrote the notes to the Schofield Reference Bible. Who then is God, Jesus, or the Christian Zionist editors of Schofield's Bible's footnotes. What happened to the, quote, infallibility of Scripture, unquote, that all the Christian Zionists I have met say they stand on? Jesus told his disciples clearly that their job was to carry forward his kingdom on earth after he was gone and that he would guide them through his always present spirit and that he would be in a better place preparing an eternal and spiritual home for them. Is that not evangelical Christianity? But it is not Christian Zionism because it provides no special route or second chance for Zionist Jews who must come to Christ just like everyone else or be left out. There is no rapture in Jesus' final dinner plan. There is no easy plan. There is only the straight gate which is rejected by Zionists. I received an invitation from an Arab Christian pastor that is a perfect example what is appropriate on Good Friday. It is all about Jesus and nothing else. And here's the invitation. You are invited to the Passion of the Christ memorial service on Good Friday at 7.30 p.m. at the First Arabic Baptist Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Come experience that night of passion as we celebrate the washing of the feet and the Lord's Supper with English and Arabic song and scriptural reading of that event. The Last Supper may have occurred during the season of the Passover, but so did Jesus' death. And there is no connection that justifies diluting the Easter message with a strictly Jewish Passover diversion. Please encourage your church to stop doing so. Okay, well, thanks, Chuck. I'm sure we'll create a big firestorm. You've you've already had some responses on that because we're really kind of digging in here. The as you point out, the radical Christian Zionists like the John Hagees of the world are being recognized as being radical, and people want to distance themselves from those kind of people. But this certainly is a more subtle form of corruption of Christianity. Yes, it is, and it uh, has a way of taking in most pastors. Most pastors have been trained to feel that if somebody comes to them and that person is both Christian and Jewish, they found a rare gem, someone who can talk their language and has this label of authenticity that comes from being Jewish. And, of course, this goes with the Zionist idea that, that Paul 
Apostle Paul fought all the time when he was out campaigning, and the Jews who he was proselyting uh, had a way of feeling highly superior to the Greeks who were coming into the church. And as Paul got away from Jerusalem, where there were lots of Greeks and not very many Israelites, ancient Israelites or Judeans or of the, the Jewish sect, he found it more and more of a problem so that he used, he didn't coin a term for it, but the term has been coined uh, Judaizers to mean those who believe that while they are professing Christians, they still have a Jewish background and so that they want everyone around them to practice both the old Jewish rites as well as the Christian rites. And that's exactly what we're talking about here when we come to Passover, which is now being used. Good Friday, Easter weekend, is being used by these organizations of so-called Jewish Messianic Christians to approach Christian pastors and implore them to let Jews for Jesus, let's say, come into the church on a Friday night and perform a Seder dinner. And when this Seder dinner is performed, most of the people will not really realize what has been done. But what happens, what happens during these is they convert the, the ceremonies of Jesus' Good Friday conference speech to his congregation they convert that into an old, the old-fashioned celebration of Passover. And they do it so cleverly that then Christians who are sitting there have a way of thinking, oh, this is entirely appropriate. And they tie the two together and say Passover, Jesus' Last Supper was just another Passover, and it was a continuation of the Passovers of the past. And it then puts a big fat foot in the door to say that Christians should still be studying Old Testament trappings. Well, I was going to add, I actually went to the Good Friday service at Pastor Jamal's Arab church here in, in Phoenix with my wife, and uh, it was a very nice service. And one of the things that he talked about in the scriptures you read was from Hebrews, and he basically alluded to the Christian Zionist fixation on what he called shadows. Now he didn't he didn't use the term Christian Zionist, but that's what he meant because one of the shadows is this belief that a physical Israel is required and a physical temple needs to be resurrected and along with all these Jewish trappings, the Seder and so forth. So it all it tends to get the focus off Jesus. It's very subtle, very, very, very subtle. And I think we need to point out that just because a Jewish convert doesn't make him questionable, obviously Caesar Aharon questioned this practice. His focus was on Jesus. But like you've said, Chuck, is it tends to be a dilution of Christianity, which is very subtle. I don't know how it's very difficult for people to see this subtly because we've been sold on the idea that we're a Judeo-Christian nation and somehow equating Judaism to Christianity and as being equal. 
and certainly there's some truth to yes Christianity was based on the Israelites and God bringing forth a Messiah through the Israelites right but of course the Israelites didn't like the Messiah God brought forth so they rejected him I wonder if you could very explicitly explain to people how they can find Caesar Aharon's wonderful 15-year-old recording on our website because it is the best thing available anywhere. And Mr. Aharon, himself a conservative Jew, raised in a Jewish family, Bar Mitzvah, all of that had converted to Christianity without taking with him any of these Jewish trappings. He didn't believe in them. He believed that when you became a Christian, you were a follower of Jesus, and you had to eliminate, as Paul believed too, and the disciples believed that you had to eliminate and put aside the old and take on the new. So Caesar's audio is well worth listening to. It's not quite an hour, but believe me, it's. I listened to it myself a couple more times, and having not listened to it in some years, can you can you give them a certainly link? it's on the uh, Podbean site. If you're listening to this broadcast, then you're in our Podbean or you're on one of our feeds through iTunes. But if you just uh, search for Judaizing elements of Messianic Christianity, Caesar Aharon, you'll be able to find it. The one of the things I wanted to to mention is the idea that is with this messianic it's it's about experience you know so that it's, it's an experience and it's about feelings and they feel good about it and they can be emotionally whipped up and there's a connection to the ancient israelites and as you've pointed out chuck there's no way that the modern people, residents of Israel, can be connected to the Israelites of 3,000 years ago. I mean, it's just not possible. And even though they've made this connection, and it's almost sacrilegious to say otherwise, that they aren't the same people. Well, Tom, I think we need to uh, discuss a little bit about Seder, or that's the Jewish word for Passover now. I don't know celebration. I don't know why they use that term, but they do. But before we do that, I have a couple of letters that were that were particularly good letters because they were from people who took the time to write carefully, sign their name, and wanted to know, and they were both from devout Christians, and they openly questioned what, what we had to say here. And I think I should raise these questions because they're the common ones that this story has brought out. The first one... Mm-hmm simply said, wrong, read Matthew 26 to see that Christ ate the Passover with his disciples, then study a little history to see that the Jews actually practiced Passover's on two nights instead of one like God instructed. Then you can see that the Feast of the Lord are prophetic of Christ's mission, not to observe them in any way the Jews did, but to observe them for God. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. God's feasts are to be observed forever. Uh, and then he says, this does not mean the feast of the Jews like you mentioned, Purim or Hanukkah or whatever, but Passover, not Good Friday. So he's saying that Passover 
is Good Friday and that we should call Good Friday Passover. He doesn't think there should be a Good Friday. And he says first fruit, not Easter. So he doesn't believe that Easter is a legitimate name for Resurrection Sunday. He believes that there should be a separate term. He's gotten these out of an old Bible somewhere. And he says, well, I I won't go on, but I'll, I'll kind of answer this. His criticism was that in the four gospel accounts that led up to Jesus going to Jerusalem for what would turn out to be the his, and for what he, which he knew would be his death, and uh, at which the night before his death he did celebrate this dinner, which we call uh, traditionally has always been called, as far as I know, the Last Supper uh, by Michelangelo and and others who drew who did the painting of it, and. What what uh, Scott is saying is that because that uh, we did not acknowledge that the that Bible does mention Passover, that we were skipping over it. Actually, I think that only one of the one of the four Gospels fails to mention does not mention Passover at all, and and I think that's Mark. The other three talk about it in various ways. In some cases, they talk about going to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover, which they planned to do. Uh, but the reason they were going there was, of course, because that was like going on Super Bowl Sunday when a big crowd would be there. And they purposely planned to challenge uh, the uh, Jewish leaders on a, a time when the maximum number of Judeans uh, would be assembled there. In the book of John, Jesus actually sent Peter and John ahead and said, go find us a place that we can eat where we may eat for the Passover. And we said in our story that they sell it, they did the Passover dinner the day before the Passover, and of course the Jewish people did it the following day, and someone criticized that and said the Jews very quickly took up the habit of doing the Passover on multiple days, so they could do it any day they wanted. But the point, of course, here is people are saying that because Jesus mentioned Passover that this became a Passover dinner. And another guy, David, wrote to us, and he tells his qualifications. He said, I'm not a Zionist. I'm a committed Christian of the Baptist variety. I've often written about the evils of Ben-Gurion and the modern Israel. I condemn John Hagee, his prostituting himself before the Jews, demanding that he not lift up Christ's name in Israel or consider Jesus to be Israel's true Messiah. I graduated from conservative Bible college and served as a hospital chaplain. And then he goes on to say, so those are good biblical qualifications. He goes on to say, you claim that Christ did not celebrate Passover, and we've already kind of covered that. We say that uh, he did celebrate Passover, but that wasn't what the event was about. That was just the place they met. And uh, then he goes on to tell that he did send people ahead to prepare uh, the place for them, which he did. And Paul spoke of Christ being our Passover lamb sacrifice for our lives. Christ did celebrate the Passover with Seder meal according to custom and it was relevant to his ministry and his mission. You were either recklessly wrong in your anti-Jewish bias or you simply lied to advocate your agenda of divorcing Christianity from the Zionist influence. Which is it? And we are for divorcing Christianity from the, from the Zionist influence uh, because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to to divorce the followers of his followers of the day from from the Zionist influence that was dominating 
Judaism at the time. So answering these letters, talking about these things, we really have to go back and look at what the Seder dinner is, and you have to actually read the Seder dinner, the procedures for it. And believe it or not, Tom, there are any number of organizations now that advertise on the Internet that they will give you or sell you a everything including the menu for a Christian Seder. And it tells you how mm-hmm. much wine to buy and uh, all the things you can do instead of wine if you don't like wine. And it talks about what you say and the prayers you say and so on. But I think the second prayer over the second glass of wine, you drink four glasses of wine in the course of one of these Seders. And the second one I thought was really interesting because it, in the drinking of this wine, what's being celebrated is when God brought down the seven plagues, I believe it was seven plagues, on the Egyptian people in order to convince them they should let the Jewish people depart Egypt and run off across the Sinai and through the Red Sea. And all of this was glamorized in a huge movie presentation that went on for three hours called The Ten Commandments that starred Charlton Heston. must have been about 20 years ago or maybe more. Some some have probably seen that, and it's being re-shown, by the way. It's recently been re-shown right around Easter. And uh, in this particular prayer that's done where you uh, celebrate these seven plagues, you pour a little wine out of your glass onto the ground every time one of these plagues is recited. The frogs come, the boils come and infest the poor people of Egypt. They are infested with locusts. All the water turns to blood, and nobody can drink it. And then the final plague that they celebrate is the one where God strikes dead all of the firstborn sons. And as we listen to this, what we're listening to here is a Hebrew version, of course, translated into the Hebrew Bible, which is called the Torah, the first four books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, which were supposedly written by Moses, but which nobody put on paper until thousands of years later. And I'm not even sure what date the first really readable copy of Torah was. Do you happen to know, Tom? In any case, it was... No, I I don't. It was many hundreds of years after these events happened. And so what you have here is a typical Hebrew style of exaggeration and gross presentation of events that may or may not have been anything alike, alike as portrayed. Did God really bring down seven plagues? The question is raised, would the God of Jesus bring down seven plagues and kill all the firstborn children of Egypt? And, of course, in Israel's folklore, uh, these kind of things are totally proper, totally accepted. This is the kind of God they had. God slaughtered tribes for them. He gave them superhuman power to wipe out other tribes. He let them do all kinds of things to certain tribes. In other words, we live with two gods. We live with a Hebrew God that's portrayed to us by these Old Testament, especially in the first four books, of unbridled brutality. One would simply wonder if this was the loving God and he wanted the Hebrew people to be allowed to leave Egypt. Why not soften the Pharaoh's heart so that he would wake up in the morning and say, I think I'll let him go. Why bring down seven plagues to wipe out the whole country? And one quickly comes to the conclusion, 
how much of this is true and how much is, is imagination is anybody's guess. Nobody really knows. Nobody can tell how much of the Hebrew folklore that was brought down in their first four books really happened and how much of it was embellished. And yet we are supposed to adopt this prayer into the loving Jesus celebration of Good Friday when he washed the disciples' feet and humbled himself before them and told them they had to do the same thing with the world in order to bring the world around, explained to them that the world would be mean and vicious to them and that they must turn the other cheek, and if they would do that, he would care for them in an afterlife. This, this message of Jesus, how do you square that with the, with the message that comes from the Seder about God so loved the Israelites or the Judeans, if you want, whatever they call themselves. Hebrews is what Cecil D. DeMille called them. He, he had trouble finding the words, too, so they just called them the Hebrews because supposedly they spoke that language. I don't know what they really spoke. They probably spoke Egyptian. But we're supposed to somehow meld together this God of the Hebrews who slaughtered all of the firstborn children in this horrible portrayal that took place in the Ten Commandments. We're supposed to resolve that with Jesus and say that we should be practicing the Seder or the Passover meal. We're supposed to believe that Jesus actually practiced that Seder and actually seriously presented that to his followers as the way you, you thought of God. When an hour later or whatever time they had their meal, Jesus stood up, put down his towel, and began the lecture that was to be known today as the Good Friday lecture that we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's, it's in all, all four of them. Not one word about it is anything about the Moses, about the flight of the chosen people out of Egypt, about the slaughter and the plagues, or any of that. It's just not there. Jesus didn't discuss one word of that in any of these four books with his followers. You can carefully sit down and read the accounts uh, of all four, and we didn't put that in. You know, we're not putting that all into a story, but we may footnote it or something so people can find it more easily. But, but we've carefully read them all, and there isn't anything about it. There's no Seder language in it. There's no Passover language of any kind. Nothing about the flight, the parting of the Red Sea, or any of that sort of thing whatsoever. So what we say is there is no connection between the Passover and Jesus. There's absolutely no connection between the God of the Passover and the God of Jesus. Now, we know there is only one God, and we know that, that it's got to be the same God, but what we have is a totally different portrayal of God. And so when we allow ourselves to meld together this ancient practice of the, the Seder, which, by the way, if paints a people chosen which are so superior in God's eyes to everyone else that God has absolutely no regard for the lives of any Egyptian. And they're, they're scum in God's eyes. They have no right to live at all. Not in God's eyes, but in, in the eyes portrayed to us in the language of the Seder. And, uh, of course, we have all these milked down, soothed out for Christian versions of the Seder that are now sold to us, and we're supposed to go buy one or let Jews for Jesus or Chosen People Ministries come in and conduct it, and they will bring the 
language down to where we don't notice what the Seder really is all about. So it's taken a long time to talk about this, Tom. I hope, I hope it's worthwhile. But I wanted to bring out that point, and I know that many listeners will hear this and say, well, we can't assume that every word of the book of, of, of Exodus is not true because my church says that every word of the Bible is literally true. And therefore, we've got to believe the book of Exodus and take it literally. And it says God sent seven plagues. He sent seven plagues. Well, churches are having tremendous problems with this right now today. There are all kinds of evangelical churches that no longer say that every word of the Old and New Testament is literally true. They now say, believe it or not, and I've seen a, a, a large seminary say this, and more than one actually say the Bible is literally true as it was originally recorded. And then no one has any idea of where the original recorded Bible is. So you then have a complete total impasse where you just all you can do is stare at each other and say, well, how do we deal with that kind of an assumption if you've never seen the original and how do you know that how, how do you know anything so this is all taking place not because Christianity has failed but because we have allowed ourselves to have external forces a Judaized Christianity Paul Cole would have called it the Judaizers who wanted to bring the old back in and blend it back into the new and in a, in, in a recipe that they only would decide. Uh, we've had that done, and we're having it done right now with Messianic Christianity. And I just wish Caesar Aharon was, could be here with us to discuss this with us, Tom. What hit me when you read the first letter was the fact that the gentleman decided to draw a line in the sand, if you will. In other words, the Purim was off basis, but the Passover connection was okay. So I guess the question is, where do people draw the the line on matters like this? We see the Christian Zionists, many of the experts, if you will, I've experienced in Sunday school classes where they use the Old Testament to justify things like our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So they, they can go back and forth between the Old Testament and not compare to what Jesus said. So it's kind of a question, I think the important question is, where do you draw the line in the sand? Is Are we in a new covenant? And what Jesus told us, is that the preeminent things to be our guide in our life? Or are we to fall back on these practices? And certainly God corrected the Israelites as they went off track numerous times throughout, as recorded in the Old Testament. And Jesus was that fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment, and therefore, if Jesus is the final truth, my answer to your question is, that everything that you read in the old should be filtered through the new. You should take the New Testament as being, and by the way, we have a hard time finding originals of the New Testament. We don't have those originals either, even though these stories are only, uh, what, 2,000 years old, and there's been written, uh, history has been 
is almost that old. Jesus almost lived in the time of well-documented written history. It was only a few hundred years before we had the printing press after Jesus. We had certainly had paper. And so the idea of, of recording things went through a huge transformation very close to the time of Jesus' mission, but at the time a thousand years before in the, the part of the world that where all of this took place, record-keeping was practically non-existent except what people chopped out on rocks uh, sometime or occasionally wrote on parchment uh, somewhere. Not parchment. They didn't have parchment. They wrote it on skins. So, Or the papyrus. The Egyptians had papyrus. Egyptians did, but I don't know, uh, and, and I don't know if the I don't know if the Israelites ever used papyrus or not. I'm not sure that there's a record of them using that. Uh, but uh, I can't. I, th- I think the very late recorded stuff, like some of the some of the, the records found in the recent digs, uh, were were on papyrus. But again, we have trouble. Tracing Jesus' exact words, we know pretty approximately what he said. All four of the Gospels talk about different things that he said at the same Last Supper. But my contention is that in any science that you were to study today, you would take the best, most modern, and best documented evidence, which is the newest in this case, and then you would tend to filter old stuff through that, and uh, you would tend to give more, be, more, be more trusting of that which you had the best record of. The ancient, ancient, ancient records are very suspect. And just to assume that because it's the Bible, God gave us an accurate text of it in the 1967 version of the Schofield Reference Bible, or the 1611 King James Version, or the 1564 Geneva Bible, you can't assume that because between the Geneva Bible and the actual, these actual events were 3,000, 2,500 years. If you were, however, a Jew or a Messianic Christian, which means a former Jew who teaches Christianity to Christians, basically, that's what Caesar Aaron said it is, it is a Christian with one foot in Judaism and one foot in Christianity, that is what a Messianic Christian really is, and uh, and they're straddling the river uh, between them. And if you were if you were there, you would want to take the very oldest, because that proves the Jewish supremacy part of this. And you would sell that, and then you would want to filter what Jesus said through that. And where there was room, you would let Jesus speak. And this is exactly what the Seder dinner does when administered by the Messianic Jews in our churches. It first allows the ancient Israelites to tell their story of their escape and how God declared them to be superior and preeminent over everyone else, including all of the subsequent Christians to come. And then you would make room for Jesus, maybe, to give him lip service in the service so that the people present wouldn't go away thinking that uh, that Jesus had been completely forgotten. This is just about the way I see this, the Seder service. And Jesus handled it exactly as a logical person would. He went to the, he went to the Seder dinner because that's where all the disciples expected to go. He sat there and went through the, whatever the procedure was, and I don't know who conducted it because nobody made any record 
of one thing that pertained to the Seder dinner or the celebration of the Passover at Jesus' Last Supper. There's nothing in it that tells you that they ever even mentioned the Passover there. We don't even know what they did. may have never even been discussed. But then Jesus stood up and simply made his statement, and that was what is recorded for us historically. So obviously uh, we would look at that and we would say that is the closest thing we have to the reality of Jesus' words. And, of course, I think we want to worship the good God, as the Muslims never forget to say, God is good. And that's something that you don't hear the Judaized Christians or the Christians with one foot on each side of the Jordan River stating they tend to go back to the old God is power. And that's the God that we hear hear about from them. And that's why Jesus kind of gets left out. Okay, well, there's lots of food for thought there, and I'm sure uh, we'll probably get more comments, but we welcome those, and we like the thoughtful responses. At least people are thinking about the issue that we've been talking about. I might add just one thing quickly. This latter, this latter letter I read from David, who says, forget, uh, he left out, uh, he said, no, we shouldn't celebrate Purim. Well, we wrote a story about Purim some months ago, and we pointed out how there was no God in Purim at all, yeah. and yet it's celebrated every year by every Jew and every Israeli. It seems that David must have received our letter because we sort of convinced him that Purim was not a holy celebration, and when he responded to our to this article, he mentioned that he he, he sort of acknowledged that Purim was not. We don't know if we're the ones that influenced him, but we might have been. And so we never know when we're making progress with people. That's right. And so I guess the our last question is, where do you draw your line in the sand? Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.